Welcome to Renegade Inc. It is incredibly rare for the BBC to admit that one of their Syrian reports failed to meet the corporation's editorial standards for accuracy by reporting false claims. The programme, having referred to Alex's disclosure in the winter of 2019, said it was interesting that they came at a time when WikiLeaks was offering a $100,000 reward for any leaked materials relating to the Duma incident. The ECU agreed that this amounted to an insinuation about Alex's motives. Similarly, the programme statement that Alex believed the attack was staged seemed to the ECU to rest on evidence which although strongly suggestive, was not so conclusive as to justify stating as a fact that he believed the attack to have been staged. The ECU found that, although they were limited to one aspect of an investigation into a complex and hotly contested subject, these points represented a failure to meet the standard of accuracy appropriate to a programme of this kind. Blink, and you'd have missed this admission, but we didn't. And it adds to a volley of misreporting that's dogged both journalism and peace in the Middle East for decades. Professor Piers Robinson, welcome back to Renegade Inc. Great to have you. Good to be with you. I'm a doctor now. Oh, oh well, well, sorry, uh, I'll upgrade <laughs> it. Dr Piers Robinson, welcome You're back. You're Oliver Cam. <laughs> um, Piers, uh, what a difference three years make. Uh, when we first sat down together uh, on this programme, it was on the 4th of June 2018, and we were talking about Duma uh, and the fact that you had been uh, labelled Assad apologist and a conspiracy theorist by various bits of the mainstream media. Uh, and very recently, the BBC has admitted that the Syria gas attack, uh, the report that they'd put out, uh, a uh, broadcast on Radio 4 called Mayday, the canister on the bed, had, uh, quote, serious flaws. Just talk us through this story for our audience who may not have kept up with it, but do know intuitively that there's something pretty fishy going on uh, when we report what's really going on on the ground in Syria. Well, the Duma 2018 alleged chemical weapons attack uh, was a high-profile alleged attack in, the, in a broader context of what have been repeated claims made about allegations made about the Syrian government carrying out systematic chemical weapons attacks against its population. And in 2018, there was such an attack appeared to have occurred, and it was controversial straight away. Um, the Russian Federation and the Syrian government denied that they had carried out the attack. Uh, there was very rapidly um, question marks being raised by some of the people who had been filmed in a hospital associated with this attack. And then you had an OPCW organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons went in in order to investigate uh, the attack. And really from there on, the, the rest is history. Controversy increased rapidly after it became apparent that there were OPCW persons who were involved with the investigation who were indicating that there'd been some kind of fraud or some kind of suppression of evidence in a way that uh, allowed the OPCW and the US and the French and British governments to point the finger at the Syrian government and say, you're responsible for the attack. And that controversy has just grown and grown ever since then. 
And the stakes have been very high with this, of course, because the French, British and Americans bombed Syria seven days after the alleged attack in Douma in retaliation for it. So they actually carried out airstrikes on the country. And when the OPCW went in, um, they were obviously under tremendous pressure to uh, uh, find or reach a conclusion which would underpin the French, American and British decision to bomb a sovereign country. Um, and that's, that's been it since then. There's been controversy, and we can talk a little bit more about it, has, has, has grown and grown. There are OPCW persons who have whistleblown and spoken out, leaked documents and so on, statements of concern signed by eminent uh, people around the world calling for greater scrutiny of the OPCW. Um, and, and that's where we are today. The issue remains with a lot of controversy over what happened at Duma and the OPCW's investigation of uh, the Duma alleged attack. Before we do talk a little more uh, about that, let's just go back to the 4th of June 2018. Play this clip um, uh, because when uh, you were attacked by the mainstream media in the UK, uh, this was the upshot of it. You um, have brought this up right at the sort of critical moment when uh, everyone in the West, certainly France, the US, the UK, was gearing up towards taking action against Syria. Dubbed by the mainstream media, specifically the Times, as uh, one of Assad's useful idiots, you were on the receiving end. Uh, and I just read a, a little bit from uh, the Times leader from the Saturday uh, that it hit people's doormats. Given all that's known about President Assad's willingness and capacity to inflict harm on a captive population, it would take an extraordinary degree of credulity, sophistry and ignorance to exculpate him of this atrocity. Exactly those characteristics are exemplified by a small group of academics whom we report today at respectable institutions that include universities of Sheffield and Edinburgh. When you read that and uh, you're tarred as Assad's useful idiot, what's your reaction to it? In one sense, it's a very obvious propaganda technique. You're asking difficult questions in the middle of a conflict. You're not pro-Assad you're pro-truth, you want to find out what exactly is going on. And it's a very common tactic as the tactic of calling people conspiracy theorists or pro-Assad or apologists. These are ways of trying to humiliate people in public and to discipline people so that they don't ask questions. Um, so the pesky problem with truth is that eventually it comes out. If you've told lies right at the top, whether you're the mainstream media or a politician or whatever it might be, um, things start to unravel. Where are we now, do you think, on the timeline? And on, on, on the one hand, I, I think there's enough factual evidence out there in, in, in the public domain to have a pretty clear picture of, of what has happened. The leaked documents, testimony from OPCW whistleblowers, etc., gives a very clear um, understanding that information was suppressed and that the claim that the Syrian government carried out the attack is, is, is clearly cannot be stood up. That doesn't make any sense. So in terms of this kind of idea of where are we in, in this story, I think the evidence is out. I'm not sure if, 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 if you need much more evidence to come out for any objective observer to reach any other conclusion than this, this was attacked not occur and has been um, propagandized and sold as part of this broader narrative of uh, alleged uh, Syrian government use of chemical weapons. The issue at the moment, of course, is this um, sustained campaign by I, you know, US, French, and, and British to maintain the narrative, to shore it up. 
the refusal of the OPCW to answer straightforward questions or to even entertain a very reasonable request um, that the inspectors should be allowed to be heard, the dissenting inspectors to be properly heard and for there to be a proper investigation of, of the uh, Duma case. All of those elements are, in a sense, being blocked because the authorities don't want to concede the ground. And I guess the broader explanation for that is that the regime change strategy continues in relation to Syria. The US seems to be continuing on that path, as do as does the UK, France, and other European allies. And so they can't let go of this narrative. They, it's, it's not served its purpose, as it were. So they're doubling down on maintaining the line, not answering questions. <laughs> Okay, reasonable questions, obvious questions, such as why was the original interim report produced by the team who went to Duma? Why was that changed by somebody in secret at the OPCW? And then they didn't try to publish it until they were caught out doing that. Now, all these questions they can't answer. So they're not answering. And then smearing people. And this is where the BBC Mayday series comes in. That you had, an, as the BBC internal inquiry has conceded, um, a breach of their editorial standards. And the real breach was what they insinuated was that one of the OPCW persons, um, as it were, was motivated by money, a, a WikiLeaks reward, which they had no evidence for, which is untrue. And they put that out, and of course they put that out to discredit um, the OPCW whistleblower. Pure and simple. Um, and so on. So you've got this kind of full force of, of, of the British, American, French governments, and then the OPCW, full force trying to maintain the narrative, not to open up the can of worms that the Duma investigation is, and then the smear campaigns. And that's just holding this thing almost in, in balance at the moment. You, you've got the, the facts are there, but you know, the mood that the issue forward is, is challenging because of the, that, the, that political drive and because of the smear campaign. And because of that, you know, people are scared of talking about it, right? I mean, I think this has been one of the problems from the beginning is that people um, are reluctant, journalists are reluctant to engage the issue because they're scared of being called conspiracy theorists <laughs> or scared of being called pro-Assad or Putin right. apologists and so on. And you, of course, saw this with the Statement of Concern that was published in, in March of 2000. And 21 signed by people such as Bastani, first director general of the OPCW, Hans von Sponek, um, and also Lord Admiral West, uh, a British war hero, a, a lord. Um, and the immediate response, he was being attacked, um, you know, for being sort of pro-Assad or a Putinist and so on in terms of the response he got from the Foreign Office. Um, and, and these threats of smears have a powerful disciplining effect on people. Um, and, and I think that that is helping contain this issue, um, even though the facts are out. Um, and I suspect they will stay contained until there's some broader shift in the geopolitical agenda in relation to Syria, when the Syrian government perhaps falls and, is, and so on, or if the US and its allies give up on the regime change strategy, then then when those kind of forces are gone, then yeah, the truth will come out. The truth will, the truth is already out, but it will become much more widely known at that point. Um, but when that is, is, is anybody's guess. 
Those people in the West who are watching this who have also had enough of Western belligerence uh, and aggression, regime change wars, weapons of mass destruction, all the stuff that we've been inundated with over the last 20 years, and the lies, what can they do now to ensure that elected leaders, political leaders, do not walk us into, often on a pack of lies, another one of these conflicts. They don't want the Americans stealing the oil in Syria. They don't think it's right. That oil should be, and the natural resources should be used to build that country, not siphoned off. They don't want their troops going over there uh, and being killed. They don't want taxpayer uh, dollars, pounds, being spent on fut absolutely futile exercises. What can those people do uh, now to, in some way, uh, stand up, not feel helpless, and stop this tyrannical uh, military-industrial complex stomping around the world? Well, I, I would like to, to think, that, or I would be nice to be able to say that it's as simple as, you know, go join the anti-war movement or, <laughs> and, and so on. But I think we're in a much more profound problem situation, a profoundly serious situation than that. The last 20 years, 9-11 itself, and all the questions surrounding 9-11, all of the regime change wars that we've seen, all of the death and destruction caused by those wars, and now what we see in relation to COVID-19, all of these are very powerful indicators that our institutions in Western democracies aren't working. Our parliaments aren't working, the mainstream media, even academia as well. Look at how weak academia has been in relation to the Syrian conflict. I mean, you know, the few academics who do pipe up and raise some questions find themselves on the front page of the Times. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that there needs to be a profound realization amongst publics that our institutions in the West are not functioning as they should be. We need to rebuild them and to restore them. And that's going to take a long time. And it's going to require people, even if they don't like the idea of it, it's going to require people to be politically engaged, to get active. So I think that's, that's the problem. That's what we've got now. We, we wouldn't be where we are today in Syria if we had a functioning media, we had a functioning academia, we had functioning parliaments. You know, the tough questions would have been asked. The truth would have been, would have been gotten out. We're living in a world where deception in foreign policy and more widely is so deep-rooted and it's so powerful a tool of political control, I think, at this point in time. And this is a, a root and branch rebuilding of our, our democracies um, so that we can then have more resili great resilience and more robust defense against wars built on lies and all the destruction that flows from that. Vanessa Beely, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you back on Renegade Inc. Well, Iris, it's really nice to be back on. Thanks for inviting me. Vanessa, um, wow, oh wow. Uh, so it turns out, um, having been maligned as a conspiracy theorist, having, been, yeah. uh, having had all sorts of um, character assassination go on, aspersions cast about you, uh, it turns out that actually uh, the corporate or mainstream media in the UK has had to backtrack on its Syria narrative. Uh, it's a narrative that you uh, have been uh, dogged with insofar as you've gone for the truth uh, throughout your journalistic career. Just, um, if you can, bring us up to date, uh, bring our viewers up to date with what's gone on, specifically the BBC having to admit 
that there were serious flaws in its Radio 4 programme that targeted you quite hard, and that programme was called uh, Mayday, the canister on the bed. Of course, it was Peter Hitchens who um, also doggedly pursued this complaint against the BBC. Um, and the fact that the executive complaints unit of the BBC has actually come back admitting that there were flaws in this particular episode. Of course, um, this is really only a, the tip of the iceberg. There were a number of other complaints that myself and members of the Syria Working Group, uh, Piers Robinson, also submitted um, to the BBC that have largely been ignored. But the very fact that um, the complaints unit has come back and admitted that uh, the claim that one of the dissident inspectors at the OPCW that has challenged the final OPCW report on the Duma alleged chemical attack um, had received incentivization, 100,000, uh, I can't remember whether it was pounds or, or dollars. It was, from do it was dollars. Right. From uh, WikiLeaks, uh, this was claimed in that particular episode. Um, and another element, I think, was that the inspector who's named Alex had not said uh, that the event, the entire chemical event was staged. Now, of course, to some degree, this is semantics. But my belief, certainly, and of course, the belief of one of the BBC producers, Riam Delati, is that certainly the hospital scenes were staged. That then must ask whether the, the following scenes were also staged. And one can easily come to the conclusion that they were. But clearly, the inspector didn't want to, to, to let's say, veer away from the scientific facts. So the BBC basically tried to frame this OPCW inspector as somebody that had been paid to lie to discredit the OPCW. That's the bottom line. The journalist uh, working on uh, that programme for the BBC, Chloe mm. Hadjamathio, she will have had to come to you, uh, having made all the allegations that she did about you and all the um, character assassination, she will have had to have come to you and asked you for a right to reply. Did she? Um, after the programme was made? Before it went to broadcast. Before it went to broadcast, I was in communication um, with Chloe um, up to the point where she sent me the final questions, which were clearly um, targeting me in the usual manner, trying to frame me as a conspiracy theorist, someone that was incentivized by both the Russian and the Syrian governments that was against um, the British government. Although, of course, in the case of Syria, I am against the, the actions of successor British government. And so I declined to respond to those questions because I felt they were simply going to be edited to the point where I would be framed in the normal manner as I have been framed by all of these media outlets that are defending US and, and British involvement um, in the Syrian war to overthrow the Syrian government. Did you have subsequent communication with Chloe after this programme went to air? Yeah, we had a number of exchanges that became, let's say, more and more heated because I challenged um, many of the conclusions that she came to, much of the framing that she produced as part of the programme. And I also, one of the major questions that I raised um, was the researcher, one of the primary researchers that the BBC used for this programme, was a Syrian uh, guy called Abd al-Qadr Habak. Now, Habak had, number one, been trained 
by an outreach agency of the British Foreign Office, um, Basma Journalism and ARC. ARC, of course, were also um, responsible for the formation of the White Helmets in 2013 um, by the former British military intelligence officer, James de Mesure. So already there was a conflict of, of interest there. But there was also the fact that Habak had been um, caught filming with Norel Denzinki, the group that had actually beheaded a 12-year-old child in August 2016. When these two um, elements were pointed out to the BBC, I received a reply, not via Chloe in the end, but via their PR department, saying, well, other media departments have used this guy, so that's our excuse, basically. Chloe, interestingly, sent me an email or copied me into an email by mistake that, that showed very clearly her investment, her personal investment in the defense of Habak. She was basically asking the BBC to defend him against the evidence that I was producing that he, one, worked with um, brutal extremist armed groups, terrorist groups inside Syria, and two, that he was trained effectively by the British Foreign Office and that this conflict of interest hadn't been um, made clear by the BBC during the making of this programme, and it still hasn't been clarified. When we come to where we are today, as we know, once you tell one lie, you have to tell seven to cover that up, and then exponentially we get to you know, mass untruth. When we get to where we are today with Syria, how... Uh, does the corporate or mainstream media now get itself out of the position that it's clearly painted itself into? How now, with all the conflicting um, evidence that's come forward, but all the positions that the Foreign Office has taken and other groups, what does the corporate or mainstream media do now? Is it as simple as say, mere culpa, look, we've got this wrong, we've got to go back to basics, or is it, you know what, we're going to double down and we're just going to t uh, tell more and more lies and we're going to far grow it down people's throats and hope above hope that some of it comes to fruition? Well, you know, I think this is very much what the purpose of the Mayday series, Chloe Hadjimatu's absolute train wreck of, of a series was about. It was about finally discrediting those that were challenging the mainstream narratives in Syria and the chemical weapons narrative is equivalent to the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, so if you like, I see very much the BBC as an extension of British intelligence agencies and of the British government. So therefore the BBC is not going to be allowed to hold its hands up and say mea culpa just in the same way as they didn't really over Iraq. I mean, John Pilger held them to account but they still, to a large degree, doubled down on, on their narratives. Tom Wright, uh, another producer on the program, sort of basically put out a tweet defending the judgment by the complaints unit and saying that it still didn't show that the chemical weapons attack didn't happen. So effectively, yes, the BBC is trying desperately to double down. It's being instructed, in my opinion, to double down, because let's not forget the British government committed a war crime in Syria if it is proven that the Duma alleged chemical attack didn't happen. And it largely is proven by the dissenting inspectors. So effectively now the BBC is protecting the British state against prosecution potentially for unlawful, supreme unlawful aggression against the Syrian state. But what I will say is that 
alliances are changing dramatically in Syria and in the Middle East generally. And at some point, my belief is the US is going to withdraw and the US is going to drop the Syria project. Right. And at that point, the BBC is going to be the emperor with no clothes on. It doesn't speak truth to power. It protects power from truth. So, you know, for me, the BBC is not fit for purpose. It's not a media operation. It's an extension of power, and it is there to silence dissent, to silence investigative journalism. It's not doing investigative journalism. I mean, even after the May Day series, Chloe Hadjimatiou published, I think it was two 7,000-word articles, again attacking me and even doxing me showing my car that I drive, it's not my car, but the car I drive with the number plate, front page on the BBC website. This is not journalism. This is a hate campaign. Before we go, um, Vanessa, um, people uh, hearing this, watching the mainstream or corporate media and knowing intuitively that something isn't quite right, especially in the wake of uh, WMD and the pack of lies that the British people and others around the world have been sold on a mm. mon with monotonous regularity. What does one do now? What does the um, interested observer do now? Uh, obviously, come read your work. Your popularity is growing massively. What else do people do so they can find out the truth, so they can be informed uh, and they don't have to go along with the official narratives? Um, I always say that people should make uh, mainstream media irrelevant because it is largely irrelevant when you consider that um, it is controlled by such a, a tight-knit community of corporatocracy. Find independent analysts, researchers, journalists that, you know, um, respond to your intuitive belief that something is wrong and can give you answers to the questions that you are asking, um, but also do your own research. You know, everyone is capable of, of doing this research. If there's something that you're not sure about, research it. Look at th those that are saying something different to the, to the mainstream narrative. And above all, remind yourself that the BBC and corporate colonial media lies and they will keep lying to you. And so you, you, you have to read it with the assumption that they're lying and look for the truth behind the headline. You're asking people to trust their intuition. Uh, you certainly yeah. trusted yours so much so you moved to Damascus uh, and have been reporting this uh, reliably uh, for many years now. No wonder that popularity is growing. Um, Vanessa, well done for um, withstanding all the ad hominem attacks. They played the woman, not the ball. Uh, it hasn't worked. You're still standing. We thank you for your work. Vanessa, really, thank you very much for your time. Ross, thank you so much for having me back on and for letting me speak about this.